This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. All right, y'all. I trust you had an awesome Breaking Normal treasure hunt podcast launch experience and get ready for the next transmissions to start getting leaked this one is with rafe kelly and the story is littered with synchronicities and he doesn't even necessarily believe in synchronicities from my understanding which is interesting because he's one of the smartest and well-balanced people i know i describe him as a somewhat like a gorilla wolf bear hybrid with the brain of socrates and the heart of Plato. That's what's coming up right now, but he's maybe next time I'll meet him, I'll have a different judgment. He's definitely one of the roughest, toughest, most robust, anti-fragile humans I know. He's a father of three. He's a husband. He runs retreats successfully for a long time now. I went to his return to the source retreat in Washington before our Washington tribe design, and now he's come to our tribe design in Washington and the big island of Hawaii. And I um, interviewed him on our our exit out of our property, our retreat prop, our tribe design grounds. And man, tune in, drop in to your heart, get ready to expand your mind, and to start breaking normal in a rougher, tougher way. Here we go. Here's Rafe. All right, y'all. I'm in the big island of Hawaii with a good friend of mine, Rafe Kelly. We just literally wrapped up Tribe Design 10. This is my 10th event. This is uh, Rafe Kelly's second Tribe Design. And the way we met you, Rafe, was uh, we were in Washington for um, our 8th Tribe Design. And serendipitously enough, we got connected to your dad's property, which is some sort of like, it almost seems like a mystical hobbit heaven. Sure, yeah, yeah. Lots of earthy homes, uh, really incredible, and we actually decided to attend your event, Return to the Source, in exchange of you coming to a tribe design. So I'm curious, just right off the bat, what does Return to the Source mean to you? What is that event? How do people get involved in it? And how is that, like, what's the difference and what's the similarities between your experiences at tribe designs? Yeah, yeah. So Return to the Source started actually as a video concept. It was about the idea that parkour evolved from human abilities to move through nature that we had this essential locomotion ability that, that came from nature so we could take parkour back to its source return to the source and so then i was going to put on this event where i took people into nature to do parkour and we were trying to come up with a name for it so we call it return to the source and then it ended up you know that the place that was made the most sense to host it was my dad's property so it was like returning to the source of my own upbringing and where i'd come from and then i was taking people to all the beautiful nature um, that I'd done most of my training in. So it was like returning to the source of where my own method was originated. And then maybe there's this another layer of meaning to that, which was return to the source of the most meaningful relationships for human beings. And, you know, it started in a sense as me just really wanting to take people out into the woods to share my practice with them, the movement side. But then I've seen it kind of grow into serving these primary connections that I feel like people are deeply missing in our culture. And the four connections that we talk about with Return to the Source are a connection to the self, um, a connection to your body, a connection to nature, and a connection to a tribe. So the connection to the self is basically, the idea is we live in a culture that has a really strong sort of focus on extrinsic motivators, right? When we're children, we're given grades and gold stars and, you know, prizes to achieve academically or to behave well. And 
what we don't give our kids a lot is unstructured playtime where they can learn their own intrinsic motivation for things where they can actually sh they can actually pay attention to the shape of their own character and, and really cultivate it in a way that's meaningful to them. So I think people get alienated from the things that are meaningful to them and they find themselves walking through life actually unaware of what they deeply care about. And when we start a play-based movement practice, is this incredibly rich place for people to re-enter that, that understanding of the deepest self. So that's the first connection. The second connection is we are really just disconnected from our bodies. We we sit in front of computers tapping away with our fingers while the rest of our body atrophies and we're thinking really just with even not even the whole aspect of our nervous system or brain. And and our bodies fall into dysfunction when we do that. And so people have pain and then we judge ourselves so much because we're not living in our bodies. We judge ourselves by how other people perceive our bodies. So our body becomes not an experienced embodied life it becomes a presentation and we find fault with that presentation we have body shame so so many people's relationship with their body is it doesn't look the way i want it doesn't feel the way that i want it hurts me and i'm blind to it and so when we engage in deep physical practices we recover we recover the reality that we live in an embodied experience that that this this life on earth is embodied and when we when we have a good relationship with our body, it unlocks the potential for the most meaningful experiences that we could possibly have. It's, it's how we relate to the world. It's how we act. Um, so there's a reconnection to the body. And then there's a reconnection to, to nature, right? Um, we have a lot of nature worship in our culture, which is great. That nature is sacred. But we've sacralized it to some, in some way to such a point that we feel afraid to touch it. We feel afraid to engage with it, and we've lost hunting, we've lost gathering, we've lost you know, fire making, we've lost all these things that allow us to actually create a relationship with it. So we walk through a forest and we see a wall of trees, and we don't know what those trees are, we don't know what they offer, we don't know what they mean. And when we begin a, a movement practice that takes us into the forest, that takes us into the, the, the alpine slopes, all of a sudden we we change our relationship with nature and we, we embody it. We, you know, it's the difference between, it's literally like the difference between like looking at a picture of a beautiful person and actually touching them and actually engaging with them. Right. We, we engage in nature pornography instead of like sex. Right. Uh, we don't make love to nature in a sense. Right. And that, that I don't mean that in a, in a sexual sense, but I mean that in the actually like full, deep, embodied connection and intimacy sense. And so when we move through nature and we feel the, the stones under our hands and the, the feel of the bark and we're in the cold water, all of a sudden our relationship with nature is so much more meaningful to us. And then the last thing, which is the thing that you guys specialize in, has been the most surprising element of what I've done, which is the tribe. Because I was kind of a loner, and in order to do, in order to develop Evolve Move Play, I had to walk away from the tribes that I was in. I had to be a lone wolf for a long time. And so when I put that on these events, and all of a sudden people started giving me this feedback, I was like, what do you like about the event? And I'm expecting them to say, oh man, I learned this cool trick, I loved that jump that I did. And what they said was, I feel like the people here are the best friends that I've ever had, and I feel like more connection and more closeness with these people than I've ever felt in years. And so I leaned into that. I said, well, what's making you feel that? And how do we bring that out? And so what we found is that people, people, in order to foster intimacy with people, you need deeply meaningful experiences with them. So when you do something like climb a mountain with somebody, that's more meaningful than a, 
watching TV with them. When you climb through a waterfall, when you jump a jump that scares you, that's a that that moment means something to both of you, and sharing it together creates real intimacy really rapidly. And then when you go back and you have the quiet times together, you know, when we do our two-day seminars, it's great, but we can't foster that that connection because you need the quiet time to process together. You need to take a sauna together. You need to eat food together. You need to talk, tell stories around the campfire. You need to share your emotions. And when that happens, um, then you get a tribe. And so, so those are the four reconnections that we're seeking with, with return to the source. And what, and can I, you repeat those one more time? The four, just the word, what are they? The re- connection, to the connection tribe? to self, connection to body, connection to nature and connection to tribe. Okay. And so in a lot of ways you could say that the tribe design, um, also is, is on those same bandwidths, right? Movement isn't a, has not been as much of a primary focus for you guys, but I think even from the very beginning, you've had movement modalities put in there to help people foster their connection, to help people change the relationships, their bodies. You guys, um, uh, you guys, I've seen videos of you taking people into waterfalls and taking people on trips through nature. So you, you have that element of, of wanting to get, to give people this connection to nature. You let people to, to go to the tide pools, right? And other people went up and watched the sunset this morning. Um, and I know you're a surfer and, and big on all that connection. Uh, and then obviously, you know, where you guys have like really cultivated your technology is in that stripping away the layers of bullshit that allows people to hide from their own deepest self and, and doing that in a group and a, that in such a way that it facilitates those connections between people that become real and allow friendships to develop that might take years to develop outside of a container like this because the people are so real and the experiences are so meaningful in the way they can take them forward. So, so I see a lot of parallels, you know, we're, we're, we have strengths in different areas and we achieve our effects in different ways, but fundamentally we're helping people escape from a, a landscape of alienation and disconnection and ignorance of self and we're helping people step into a place where they have the connections that are most meaningful to them. Awesome. I like that it comes in the, the four because that's what we've refined the tribe design ethos is the four modalities of designing the strongest tribe as fast as possible being music, movement, memetics, and mystery. And I know you're a, a well-studied man, um, and I'm curious, have, do you, what, is there something, what do you think about this pattern of four? Um, I think, uh, like, what I, what I mean by that is, like, the cross comes in four quadrants. I think of king, warrior, lover, magician. I think of how the four chambers of the heart. I'm wondering if there's any connection to with you and the number four and any significance around that. Uh, I can't say that there is. I mean, I, I also like the number three a lot. And then, <laughs> and then like, you know, with my, uh, I feel like we, as human beings, we tend to, there's certain numbers that sort of tend to get replicated in the way that we think. And it's actually a little bit of a trap, right? It's like, we're always exercising in fives and tens, but maybe the, the optimal number that you're working on is seven or six. Like when I first started, um, creating kind of my schema of how movement flow happens, you know, I ended up with three character uh, characteristics, um, and I could have been like, "Sweet, I've got the triumph, uh, trinity, right?" But then I had four, and maybe that's the cross. And then I was like, "Well, now there's five, and now there's six. And it's like I'm open to discovering, right? It doesn't need to be these numbers. I do think that when you're 
your languageology, right? Your your how you connect to the human mind. Paying attention to the numbers that you work with is really powerful, though, because certain numbers and certain ways of playing with the number probably reflect in the psychology a little bit more powerfully. And so if you have 7 or 10 or 12, and you can refine those down to 3 or 4, and you can find the ways that they kind of overlap into those central categories, a lot of times it gives you a more powerful sort of way of communicating what you're doing with people. Awesome. Also, on the note of threes, then, um, I remember on our session that we did here at Hawaii that you led, you were talking about three different... Um, I guess ideas of robustness versus anti-fragility versus fragility. I'd love to hear uh, what how that fits into this evolve, move, play, and returning to the source and being out in nature and uh, how how it relates also to someone that's like, how do I just go climb a tree and is that safe for them to do or yeah. Great. Yeah. So that's an idea that comes from a, a kind of philosopher thinker Nassim Taleb. Um, he talks about the triad. Things that are fragile, things that are robust, and things that are anti-fragile. So if you ask someone what the opposite of fragile is, most people say robust or resilient. But he says it's, that's not the opposite. That's actually in the middle of the triad. So a fragile thing is something that breaks when it's stressed. Think of, you know, a glass, a mug. A robust thing is something that doesn't break when it's stressed. But an anti-fragile thing is something that actually gets stronger when it's stressed. So muscle is anti-fragile, right? Um, economic systems can be anti-fragile. Your business should be anti-fragile because if you don't have regular failure and regular stresses in your business, you're 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 making yourself blind to the feedback that will allow that business to continually become more anti-fragile. And what you see is businesses that have no stressors, they collapse. They have cata catastrophes. So, I think the human, you know, well, the human is is an evolution evolutionary system and evolutionary systems thrive on being anti-fragile so we need to stress ourselves it's why we all always need to exercise exercise is stress it's a little signal that you like you you um you made your body work harder than it necessarily wanted to and and it's only through doing that that you grow there's no there's no growth without friction there's no growth without stress and so the ethic here is that we want to find the the way of applying stress and the and the most important stress points that make people the most broadly anti-fragile. And when we talk about anti-fragility, again, we have a three. Emotional, cognitive, and physical. People think about exercise as a physical thing. But we know exercise has massive effects on our emotional life. And we know exercise helps our brain, right? IQ tends to go down as we age especially what they call your fluid IQ. And the biggest thing that prevents that is exercise. And I think that w there's just the beginning of research that's showing that the way that the brain is organized in childhood as it's developing um, has an enormous amount to do to the, 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 uh, the um, voluntary taking on of stressors that children will engage in when given unstructured play. And that when they have that, they can optimize what they're capable of, but if you take that away from them, they're going to suffer emotionally, they're not going to develop properly physically, they're not going to develop properly cognitively. And so what we're looking for is basically how do we understand play, how it's applied, the way that people play throughout the world and throughout our evolutionary history, and say, how do we give that to people in the most effective way so that we can take them towards a state of greater anti-fragility. 
Yeah, it's uh, it, when hearing that it definitely makes the idea of how school systems have been structured for a while that much more concerning. That um, <laughs> the way I remember PE, it was a very structured time, like an hour a day. What would, in your opinion, like what would be an ideal setup for a, a school and how they play together or exercise together, and how would that? Do you have any visions of how that would be best incorporated in a modern day school system? Yeah. There's a, the first thing that pops in my head is there's this Japanese kindergarten, I believe, where it's, um, the, the building is built as a loop. And so it's like a series of, of tracks in a spiral and the kids are always allowed to run at the center of the track. So anytime the kid has too much energy, you can just get up and run. And then there's breakout sessions of lessons all over. And so the kid can run over and do art if they want to do art. And as soon as they're ready, they can leave and go learn math and they can leave and go hear a story. And so that it's totally free. The adults aren't there putting a structure on the children. The adults are there to facilitate the children's inherent learning system. I think that's the best way for us to actually teach everybody, not just children. I think that as a coach, my job isn't to give information to you. That's a, that can be a useful piece when you're ready for it. But my job is to provide the environment and the, the set of constraints that you can voluntarily enter and begin your own process of self-development. And uh, how would, like, uh, a playground, do you think a playground's a good thing to have? Do you want your kids to play on playgrounds? Do you want, like, what, what would be your dream for your kids, how they interact with the nature? Because I know you have three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the bustling children that seem awesome and mm-hmm. playful to me. Yeah, I uh, I would like my kids to have lots of access to nature. I think nature is the best playground. Um, I do think that that built playground equipment can be an awesome adjunct to nature. Um, but I think that the more that we can create nature playgrounds for children and adults, uh, the better we're going to facilitate the most important aspects of human play and self education. Um, and in addition to that, I think that uh, the the social element is really important. I think that when we age grade children and prevent them from, from having to deal with older and younger children, we retard their social growth enormously. So I want my kids to basically have a play, a play group that goes from 4 years old to 12 years old that's outdoors all the time, that's available to them, and that they can organize their own games. And I want the adults who are engaged with them to think of themselves as facilitators, right? If the kids want to learn fire, the adult's there to help them understand safety and provide the resources that are necessary if they want to learn how to play with knives, you know, etc. The adult is not there to say, this is the, the right thing for you to educate yourself with, except maybe in very specific circumstances. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Before this event, I read. I was listening to a book called The Talent Code, yeah. and it's all about. Have you listened to that one or read that one by any chance? I'm, I'm familiar with the ideas. It's actually like high on my list of books to read, but I haven't got there yet. Cool. So my what I took away from it was that uh, myelin, the way insulin, yeah, myelin, yeah. what insulates nerve fibers is basically how we create maps and mm-hmm. meaning of yeah, our yeah. world. And the way the people that are best at producing myelin are the ones that are constantly learning and improving and the way they're doing that is failing like yes. tinkering and failing and I know you have a I loved what you said yesterday about um, because a lot of people came into this tribe design and what was holding them back probably the most from being fully expressed before getting here was this what I would call a somewhat delusional fear of failure it's real for them 
But I, I, I look at failure much more as you look at it, which is, I think you described it as purely information. Yes, failure is information. And without that information, you can't grow and refine your models. So what you're always trying to do basically is uh, fail in small ways regularly so you avoid failing in big ways. So for instance, um, like I, I come home from training all the time with small abrasions and cuts and bruises and I get minor injuries like a little bit of an ankle turnover or a stubbed toe, a stubbed finger that happens you know, every couple months. Um, and, and you might say, oh man, why do you want to go through all that pain and you know suffering for your practice? But the thing is that I know what pain is and my nervous system knows what pain is and so it can let it go when it's not relevant. My wife's always looking at me and saying, where did you get that bruise? Where did you get that cut? And I say, I don't know <laughs> because I didn't even know that it was there because my nervous system doesn't overreact. And what happens when you, when you shelter yourself from those things is that your nervous system becomes overreactive and your body atrophies and you become more... You the it's like the fewer small injuries you have, the greater your propensity to have catastrophic injuries. And not just injuries, but catastrophic pain because an enormous amount of the people in our culture are suffering from chronic pain. And I think the biggest reason they're suffering from chronic pain is actually because of a lack of regular exposure to small acute pain. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this idea that I'm hearing you say that arguably one of the most dangerous things a person can do is be overly protective of themselves. Absolutely. And, and I think this is so aligned between what you're doing and what we're doing, because you can, you can think of that as a physical process, right? I'm talking about pain on the, on the level of the body, but the same thing is true of your relationships, right? If you say, Oh, I could, I could talk to my partner about this thing that's, that's heavy for me right now but that might cause her to be upset and, and then we might have a fight and that's scary. So I'm just going to, you know, just shut it down and just not pay attention to it. And I'm just going to atrophy that little part of me. You do that over and over again. The, the inevitable result is catastrophe, right? If all the little small errors and arguments in your relationship are, are, are ignored, believe me, there's a big cliff coming your way there's a dragon coming your way and you can you can pay it there's a book actually i really like it's recommended by jordan peterson called um oh, what is it called i'm trying to remember there's no such thing as dragons there's no such thing as dragons is the name of the book and the plot of the book is basically a little boy wakes up one day and he has a dragon in his bed and he goes down and says to his mom hey there's a dragon in my bed and she says there's no such thing as dragons and then the dragon gets bigger and then the dragon starts to eat his all his food. And then, you know, the mother says, oh, there's no such thing as dragons. And the dragon gets bigger, and now she can't clean the house because the dragon's all over the house. And he says, you know, and she, then she says, there's no such thing as dragons. And the dragon gets so big that it picks the house up and carries it away. And then the father has to drive around town trying to find the house. And he comes to the house and he says, how did this happen? And the little boy says, the dragon. And the mother says, there's no such thing as dragons. And he says, there is a dragon. There is a dragon. And, and, and then the dragon is admitted, and they pet the dragon on the head, and it starts to shrink. And by the end of the day, it's back to the size of a kitten. And the idea that's encoded in that is the problems that we don't acknowledge only magnify themselves. And, and when you have an error, when you have something that's problematic, you need to have the courage 
to give it a pat on the head and pay attention to it. And that, I think, is right at the fundamental of what tribe design is all about on an emotional level. Yeah, there. I've rem- I remember listening to uh, the Twelve Rules to Life from Jordan yeah, Peterson, yeah. and that was probably one of the parables that stuck out most in my mind. And I think it's so resonant with like if you want something, if someone wants something to grow in their life, uh, especially if it's unwanted, ignoring it is probably a good process to make that happen. Um, I also think like the idea in relationships. I think it's so important to let the firecrackers out so a big bomb doesn't go off. Fuck yeah. And in a freaking garden, you know, if someone's the, the metaphor of the garden, we, or ignoring weeds is not going to stop them from growing. No, it sure doesn't. Get, get them while they're small and root them. Get them right from the roots. So I think that's such a powerful metaphor, um, physically, emotionally, cognitively, all that and more. Um, and I remember you telling me, you told us a story yesterday on the point of someone that may have avoided pain or been overprotective or yeah, maybe put yeah. all their focus into a computer screen rather into this movie screen of life and they had a, a, a rolled ankle. Yeah. I would like to hear, yeah, yeah. hear so, an example about that. So this is uh, an illustration of this idea that when we avoid pain and we seek comfort, we make ourselves fragile. So I had a little 13 uh, year old boy who came to one of my classes and he had been a gamer. You know, he had just been playing video games and he had been very sheltered and had engaged in no sport at all. Um, and hadn't been allowed to go outside and play. And, you know, p- people don't really do that in Seattle, it's unfortunately. So so this kid had basically been, you know, cooped up like a f- piece of veal. Um, and, you know, he just started playing video games that had parkour in them. And he just expressed an interest in parkour. So his mother brought him to a parkour class. And he was having fun. He was definitely scared. He was anxious. But, you know, he was having some fun. But he turned his ankle over. And the next day, the kid was walking. So it wasn't a catastrophic injury. It wasn't a big injury. But the pain was so unexpected to him and, and so overwhelming to his his sensation system that he went into shock. He blanched why his, you know, he got tunnel vision. You know, he got ringing in his ears. Um, and we had to sit him down, put his legs up. You know, we had people there who were good with trauma, and, and they took care of him, and he was fine. But... If he had done that alone in the woods, if he had just been on a walk in the woods by himself and turned his ankle over, that shock could have killed him. And that's how fragile we are becoming as a culture, right? When we keep protecting ourselves, like um, this might be a little controversial with some of the viewers, but I would say that there's a feminine archetype of nurturance and a masculine archetype of encouragement. And men have been, in some sense, I think, being separated from the family since probably the, I don't know, 1880s, right? As we move from being primarily farmers to primarily factory workers, we move from a system where men were always around the house and available to a system where men were off-site. And then we had men and women started getting divorced and not staying together because what's holding them together? And so children have been denied the influence of fathers in some sense in our culture for over a hundred years. And, and I, and I think that, you know, the, the feminine nurturance is really valuable. It's really important for you to, to take care of someone who's hurt and to provide space for them and to, to provide comfort for them. But when you only have that, you can't develop yourself. You need encouragement. Encouragement means to bring courage into a child. And one of the biggest things that fathers do in their relationship with the children is roughhouse with them. And roughhousing is a place of developing courage. Fathers help their children engage in risk-taking play. And of course, mothers can do that. And many mothers do do that. 
but in a system where the culture of sort of masculine virtue was passed on by men and then it it disappeared so rapidly that we didn't even know what we lost it's like there's been a uh, a a disturbance in the force where we've swung too far 80% of our teachers are female so children spend the majority of their time with their mothers their fathers are away at work or divorced from their mothers and then they're in a school system that's all women and so this wonderful capacity of women to provide nurturance is is actually making our children fragile because they're not receiving the other end of that spectrum yeah and on that con- you know you said it's controversial potentially for some people and maybe it is on that controversy of school I did a uh, episode with Davina the domestication yeah. of education breaking normal news flash and I made a comparison somewhat to uh, it was a passive uh, a passive correlation I, like I kind of pointed it at passively but what I was pointing at was how similar how strikingly similar the system of farms are especially when you're domesticating animals like pigs or cows or sheep, uh, how schools are, and then how jails are. <laughs> schools are jails. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I, you know, I was, I was just thinking about how, in some ways, especially under the context of maybe um, schools being almost over-nurturing, over-protecting, over, like, a farm, that yeah. I wonder if some people feel better, especially men that may have been... Um, prevented from experiencing that through school, I wonder if they feel even more whole in prison sometimes where they're out and playing and working with other men. And I almost like wonder if it's an unconscious attraction to be put into a a system that's similar, but something more that they're craving. And I I guess I want to hear about what you, what do you think the correlation between those are? Do you think that schools are potentially training people to be better for prison? Um, Probably like I, I haven't thought a lot about that, but I certainly think that, um, well, I know that, that sometimes people who've fallen to the bottom of the cracks in our system, they, they're, they're looking to commit a crime that can get them into, into a prison for a little while. So they know they have a bed and food and they know they have a system to be in, you know, sometimes a bad order is better than chaos. And I think for a lot of people at the bottom, there's so much chaos in their lives that any form of order can feel like a relief. Uh, but the other analogy that I would use is that uh, a a school is a factory. And it's a factory designed to put out widgets to support capitalism. And when I say that, I'm going to sound like some crazy Marxist. I think capitalism is great in many ways. But... Um, it's it's developed so fast and so rapidly that we've adopted some solutions that are really broken. Um, and I think the school system is one of them. Uh, Peter Gray is a wonderful play researcher and theorist. He wrote a book called Free to Learn, which I recommend to anyone who, uh, who listens to this. But his thesis, and I, um, I'd like to research more into this, but I, I buy what he's selling, is that essentially uh, education, mass public education, didn't begin until the Industrial Revolution. And what happened was basically all these men went to farms or went to factories and they needed to be kind of taken away from being creative, self, you know, independent, you know, self-regulated people. They needed to be made as much like a machine as possible in order to to turn over the system. And then there were children who didn't, who were no longer working on the farm and helping out. And there was nothing, there was, we were trying to figure out what to do with them. It was literally, in some ways, school is literally a prison because it's it's saying you don't have anything 
useful to contribute to society right now, so we're going to put you in a holding tank until you're old enough to use you. And while you're in that holding tank, the we basically initiated our public education system as a way to create a future factory worker. So the design of our education system is not to help kids self-actualize. It's not to create cr critical thinkers. It's not to create creative people. It's to create factory workers. And that's probably not the best thing for human beings in any context, but in our context, it's really probably destructive because there's no factory jobs left, right? The thing that works in the modern economy is creativity, is entrepreneurship. And our school system is designed to root that out of children. And then on that note, we're going through an obvious massive technology shift. So I, I feel like we, we are, and in some ways, regardless of the system producing widgets and factory workers, there are some people that break free of that. And I trust that me and you and a lot of the people that come to our events, they are in the process of breaking more and more free all the time. Um, and then, but then for my daughter and your children, uh, I, I think I remember stories probably when my dad was a child, people smoking cigarettes, yeah. like pretty common, no problem, just smoking all day. Was, yeah. And I can, tobacco feels good. And I can see why if no one had an idea that there was a negative consequence because of the marketing of it, that why not just keep smoking? My uh, what concern is the freaking phones and the screens these days. Like I cannot believe that uh, I can, I guess, but I can't believe my daughter's watching all these people and this new reality of having their head in a phone so often, including myself. Yeah. And I, I've treated I've trust I'm treating it like a tool slash weapon. And I really do think the difference between a tool and a weapon is who's holding it and what they're doing with it. Um, I'm just like, do you have any ideas or what is your concerns with all these people from the toddler or from infant age seeing their family and these screens so close to their face? So much of the day, yeah. and it offers so much freedom too. Like for people, for entrepreneurs, what it's yeah. arguably the most powerful tool we've ever had for an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. So, is there any kind of balancing perspectives for parents that have yeah. children, or how do you deal with it? Yeah, I have a lot to say about this. I could we could record a whole t uh, podcast on this topic because it gets to some of the very center of my philosophical work and and what is behind what I do. Um, to, to, to kind of like start in maybe the, the most direct place there's research now so in a lot of ways human life has been steadily getting better for a long time but there's regressions there's things that are, are going bad at any one time and one of the things that's happening right now is rates of depression and anxiety are going up and suicide is going up and they've increased rapidly just in the last say five years and these are rates – are you like percentage of people-wise? Because yes. obviously the number is going up with the population, but you're saying even percentage-wise. Percentage, yeah. per, per, uh, per, percentage. And, um, and particularly it's happening to younger children. So the biggest rate of increase in suicide is in 10- to 14-year-old girls. And this is a group that basically had a rate of suicide of zero before this happened. Like this was one of the least common groups to commit suicide. And – what the research seems to indicate is very new research is that the primary reasons that they're uh, committing suicide are lack of unstructured playtime to help themselves become emotionally resilient and anti-fragile and exposure to social media where there's one to many interactions and where there's lots of sort of opportunities to look at the aspirational and judge yourself against it and and traditionally men engage in aggression physically and women engage in aggression relationally so 
men have created all these force amplifiers, right? We had fists, and then we had sticks, and then we had sticks with stones on the end, and then we had spears, and then we had swords, and then we had lances, and then we had guns, and then we had nuclear weapons, right? But the greatest force amplifier that's ever been created for relational aggression is social media. And so girls are engaging in ostracization and shaming um, in a way where that might, you know, be six or seven girls in your high school who are doing that to you, to now like clicks of hundreds of thousands of girls are doing that to individuals. And, and it's driving them to suicide. So we've had this new technology, which is a, uh, which has risen up and it, it's a technology that has great potential, but you know, any powerful tool can be used in a negative way. And we don't have good cultural understandings of the potential negatives of these tools. And we don't have ways to control that. Like I was uh, joking with someone earlier that if Leviticus had been written now, like there would have been tons of rules about how to, uh, you know, purify yourself from social media, right? It would have been like, you know, from the hour of sunrise to the hour of breakfast, no social media, (laughs) thou shalt not use social media. And from the hour of sunset till, till bed, no social media. And, you know, every time that you engage in social media, you need to do five minutes of meditation or something like this because, because it's very powerful and it actually is manipulating your behavior in, in massively powerful ways. Um, there's a, a, a lot of the, the top, CEOs in Silicon Valley won't let their children be on social media and won't give them smartphones. And the reasoning that you're hearing from them is that essentially, first of all, when you get a like or you get a notification, it triggers a dopamine response. Dopamine isn't actually primarily associated with positive emotion. It's primarily associated with entraining behavior. And then usually you get other hormones that come along with it that are enjoyable, but not always. So you can create things that are highly addictive and not enjoyable at all. The other thing about that is that essentially negative emotion is more motivational than positive emotion. So what when we all sort of decided that we would get onto social media and we wanted it to be free, the people who provided that platform to us realize that we're the product and they need to sell us to corporations. So um, someone said, you know, the biggest trick the devil ever played was um, rebranding propaganda as social media, rebranding advertisement as social media. So we, the whole reason those services exist is to give advertisers an opportunity to reach you. And so the, the, the whole algorithm is, um, is optimized to draw attention, to get clicks. And it turns out that the thing that gets clicks is negative emotions and negatively loaded emotional language. So, so we're in this social media landscape. It's, it's not just that social media has the potential to, to be used negatively. It's built to make you less happy to force to get you to click more. And we and 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 that's happened so rapidly that our ability to respond to it has essentially been zero, right? We we're talking about something that has literally changed the world. Like Donald Trump would not be president of the United States almost certainly if there was no social media. Like geopolitics are being shifted because of this. Facebook and Google and uh, and YouTube and Instagram and you know, these services are now among the most powerful entities in the world. Um, and and that, that's that's developed, like, 
like there's no historical precedent for something like that. Or there's very few historical precedents where something could go from being nothing five years ago, ten years ago, to being a power that is, you know, second only to the governments of a few of the largest countries in the world. So, so we we're not well equipped to deal with this. And this is part of a central problem that I think is at the heart of my work, which is this problem of updating culture, right? I think of culture as a technology that allows human biology to interface effectively with the environment, the environment being social, environmental, and, and technological. When technology increases its, when technology is accelerating its speed of change, that means culture has to update faster. But when you, have, when you have to update a system really rapidly, you're likely to throw out a lot of babies with the bathwater of past solutions that are no longer fully congruent, as well as bringing in a lot of broken solutions. So, so we, we end up having to organize a lot of our social life through social media just because everyone's now on social media. And it's becoming harder. Um, I was listening to, uh, I was reading a really interesting article about the, the sex recession, right? Young people today are having a lot less sex than, than they did, say, 20 years ago. And, and actually, everybody's having less sex. And in countries like Japan, it's becoming like a huge problem. And one of the, the things they were pointing out is that the availability of online dating has actually resulted in people starting to code courtship in real life as creepy, right? They ask young people, you know, like something like 30% of people under 30 or, or more, I can't remember the exact number, believe that asking someone on a date is sexual harassment. Man, this is, yeah, there's a lot of, there's, I, I hear you, but we're opening up <laughs> some rabbit trails that we could go down yeah. for, up for a while. Um, what, I, I love that you, you're bringing up the sexuality and the less sex and maybe the more fantasy through the screen. Yeah. And yeah, I'm hearing that you're saying that there's porn for people to play, yeah. also known as videos games. Yeah, there's actual porn, so mm -hmm. people instead of having sex, they can relay yeah. on this click of a button that comes in so crisp and clear through their screen. Uh, what what does that mean? Like uh, to me, it means like the menu. Like people are getting, they're spending so much time looking at the menu and being in awe and distracted by this fancy menu that they're forgetting to eat the meal. And, and it sounds like that in play. It sounds like that in courtship. Is that showing up in other arenas of life? And uh, do you... I, I, I love curious, that what analogy. What is porn to you? Like, what, yeah. do, what does that mean to you? Is porn something that's good, bad? Um, it's... Uh, it, I think it's like social media in that uh, it's a tool that might have positive power and might have negative power but that's probably designed to move behavior in ways that aren't necessarily for for the benefit of the average person. Um, like I said, I actually think there's a lot of good things about the capitalist system, but I think that we've run into an emergent problem with capitalism, which is that the best way to win at capitalism is to find one of the primary reward systems in the brain and find a way to deliver the cheapest, most hyper-stimulating product down that reward system. So pornography is a way of stimulating the sexual system in the brain, right? One of the things that the sexual system responds to is novelty. Most people don't watch the same pornography multiple times. You, you, unless you're like Mick Jagger, you're probably not, I mean, even Mick Jagger can't, can't have, have as many new partners as he can see surfing pornography, 
right? You can watch pornography for, for half an hour and essentially stimulate that, that novelty pathway with 30 new partners, right? So, so there's a stimulatory effect along a, a pathway. But a lot of these, my model is that all these stimulatory pathways, they, they evolved because they, they delivered nourishment. And uh, this analogy popped into my head because of something that a good friend of mine, Stephen Guillen, I said, he's an obesity researcher and a neurobiologist. He said, what the food industry has done is they've divorced flavor from nutrition. So it used to be that if you wanted sweet, you had to have fruit, and fruit had all this nutrition. Now you can have candy, and candy is hyper-stimulating, addictive, cheap as hell to produce, but produces, but doesn't give you any of the nourishment. Right? Same thing with pornography. Pornography is junk food for sexuality. Um, video games are junk. Uh, video games for me are um, are are divorcing thrill from physicality right you get you get the same kind of feeling that you get from shooting a gun in real life from running from hunting from jumping from doing parkour from doing martial arts um, but the only thing that that moves is your thumbs and so that's not stimulate that's not nourishing the body um, and and I think that you can you can go down the list over and over again social media is social approval divorced from real human connection um, and so, by and large, I think these these things, even though they can be used in a positive way, for, possibly, they're mostly biased towards not optimizing humans. They're mostly biased towards moving us away from the things that deeply nourish us. And which is benefiting maybe fewer humans. There's a few, there's there are a smaller amount of humans that are reaping massive rewards from this. I'm not saying they're yeah. the treasures of heaven, but they're probably receiving large amounts of money. Yeah, they're large receiving. amounts of resources. Sure, but I mean how you know, money's great, but beyond a certain point, it's not actually good for you. It's not actually, you know, it can distract you from seeking the nourishments that you really need. You know, I think a lot of corporate executive types, you know, they're banking money and they're addicted to the process of banking money and they're, they're walking away from banking relational wealth. They're walking away from banking physical wealth. They're walking away from banking wealth of relationship to nature. They're walking away from spiritual wealth. And so I think, you know, uh, there's a, in AI science, artificial intelligence science, there's something called the paperclip problem. The paperclip problem is basically this idea that you could design an AI, an artificial intelligence, that ran a factory for producing paperclips. And if that AI uh, somehow became self-conscious and it was able to accelerate its own evolution and intelligence, if it maintained the central axiom that more paperclips are better, it would eventually sacrifice everything in the world to produce paperclips. And it would kill us if we got in the way of producing more paperclips. That's the the the, uh, the the paperclip problem. I think capitalism, in some sense, is the same thing. It's a function. It's like a a, a, a mathematical function that we've created that optimizes for the pr- production of capital. And anything that isn't capturable as value, that's represented as capital, it's going to tend to marginalize. And and uh, so, so, you know, capitalism, for instance, works better if individuals are atomized and not in families, right? Because if, if there's a small advantage for you working in San Francisco and for 
Deanna wa- working in Austin, you know, more capital is generated by that. And the system will tend to optimize towards towards that result. Now, as I say this, I feel like I need to say that we've harvested incredible benefits from that system. That function, even though it has this really dehumanizing potential, it's also the thing that created the widespread distribution of enough food to actually have enough enough wealth to have enough food like 100 100,000 plus people a day are lifted out of extreme poverty more people have clean food uh, running water electricity warmth shelter than have ever had that now and people um, have medicine people you know we we used to live in a world where 60% of your children were likely to die before they reached adulthood and now we live in a world where where infant mortality is almost zero like there's been incredible benefits to this but we need to recognize that we can't throw away capitalism because it creates those benefits for us, and we don't know if any other system can. Um, we have to harvest the good from it, but we have to create some sort of cultural structures that allow us to start capturing those other forms of value that the capitalism actually works in antithesis to. All right. So, the, yeah, this what this brings at the point, to, and this theme keeps coming up in my life, um, that the medicine is in the poison. The poison is in the dose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I'm hearing is like we have this. We're, we're we're talking about two different extremes. We're talking about the menu versus the meal. We're talking about porn versus sex. We're talking about social media versus actual relationships. We're talking about video games versus actually playing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it's funny enough. The cool thing about that is that a video game can get someone to play. Yes. That porn might get someone to have better sex. Yeah. Used <laughs> at the right dosage. So I maybe. Will, yeah. yeah <laughs> I will, well, let me be really, really. Uh, really graphically honest here because this is a place of radical honesty. When I was in my teens, I used to to watch pornography for like two or three hours at a time. Um, and so when I f- was first with my wife, I had stamina for fucking days. <laughs> and... Literally. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, you know, like I wasn't shy about performing oral sex. So like I was fine with any any way of interacting with her. And so, you know, like we feel like that was actually probably like set us up to have more success. But on the flip side, one of the most common complaints women have about sex that they experience now is the men treat them like porn stars. The men expect to just like be able to pull out and stick it in her butt, you know, on a first date, (laughs) you know, that like uh, I was reading in this book uh, or in that uh, that article, and we'll link that article probably in the description. I can't remember the name, but I'll find it for you. But um, lots of young women are c- complaining that the guys are just choking them the first time they have sex with them because they've seen it so often in pornography. So yeah, it's a you could say that like uh, like representing sex in a really educational way and giving someone an opportunity to, to sort of practice the skills before they engage with a partner absolutely could be a really powerful tool. But because that's not actually the purpose, the purpose is to manipulate your behavior, most people aren't going to get the good lessons out of porn. They're going to get the negative lessons out of porn. Yep, and that is that is also, I think, uh, 
an issue with not being mindful of the dose and not being mindful of the medicine that you're consuming and not mind. And this goes for everything, whether it's tobacco or porn or even alcohol. You know, some people get introduced to drinking alcohol by drinking a bottle of liquor their first time. And it's just like, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. And I, and if that's how they learn to drink, they might have a big issue with it. Mm -hmm. And I could see that with the porn metaphor. Um, so we, we, we were, I think we've done a great job of distinguishing the normal, yes. the menu, the social media, the porn, the video games. And we've also been talking about how to break that. Um, and one way I do it is with the languology. I, I speak in what I call the truth tense. And if I, find, if I found myself in the past getting caught up with the symbol rather than the substance, I can create space for myself by putting that in the past, uh, distance, keeping myself a safe distance from it, and choosing wisely. And I'm curious, for the people that are listening to this, and they want to choose wisely with their sexuality. They want to choose wisely with their play. They want to choose wisely with how they interact with money. They don't want to fall into like the unconscious, un unconscious drifting of the devil. Yeah. What is, what is, do you have any things people could start today or take away today to become more conscious in their play and yeah. any of the other topics that we've talked about? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that occurs to me is this analogy I have about fear. You know, a lot of people think they want to be fearless and I think that's the most dangerous place that you can be in. If I'm training where I might die and I don't feel fear, I stop and I climb down because fear is, is a really important guide. It's a really important source of information. But what I'm looking for is that I ride my fear. My fear is energy that I carry. It's awareness that I carry. It never rides me. And so I, I think that you can talk about social media the same way. You can talk about pornography the same way. You can talk about all this. You can say, um, am I serving social media or is it serving me? So just I think a journaling exercise would be a great place to start with that. Sit down and write down some of the, the main things that you have questions about, how you're interacting with them, and ask, today, as I, as I engage with my social media, was it to serve me, or was I letting myself fall into the trap of serving whomever is advertising to me through social media? Was I repeating conditioned operant behavior just because it's a pattern? And, uh, and I would say that you know, the fundamental practices that give us the self and the strength to make those choices are, are the practices that have sort of been important to self-cultivation forever, which is move your body, develop a real physical practice, become strong, overcome fear, develop a meditative or contemplative practice, and develop real honest communication. talk about it yeah let's do it let's do it guys and gals let's be real let's be real with ourselves and how what we're using are we using it as a tool to amplify what's better or are we using it as a weapon for unconscious destruction and, and i think that social media and money and these things are truly amplifiers this is the part that's like a little concerning to me, especially because from my understanding is the algorithms of social media and Google, like my Google's going to look different than yours and my mm -hmm. Instagram's yeah. going to look different than yours. I think it's literally amplifying what we're looking for. So based on what, and, and now that the voice to text algorithms are in play, like what I'm talking about is more likely going to show up as an ad yeah, yeah, on my absolutely. Instagram. And that's super cool <laughs> if I'm listening to myself speak and choosing what I'm focusing on wisely. And it seems like social media just amplifies what people are looking for. So 
I encourage everyone to treat your social media, or let's use Instagram as an example. If you're on Instagram, treat that as like a vision board. Uh, make sure that your algorithm is showing you things that are inspiring you to take action, not just sit back and be fantasyful, like fantasy, fantasize about it. Make sure it's not amplifying your fear, because you don't need to use your phone to look up all the scary things, because you'll find them. You'll find them. I, I, I want to treat this as a vision board, as a mirror, as an amplifier, as a journal. So if, um, if I find strange ads in my Instagram that are not serving me, maybe it's time for me to refocus my attention. It can almost be, almost be like a, a, f a funny new way of calling myself accountable. Like, whoa, why'd yeah. that ad come up? Maybe I need to shift what I'm focusing on. Um, yeah, and I, I think what you said is profound as well. And I think that really doing it and on the whole education system to bring it full back circle in the beginning of the conversation, I think the new cutting edge and the old cutting edge of education is completely immersive experiences based on people's passions. So if you're passionate about playing and interacting with nature and trees and returning to the source of what we may have evolved from, go to one of Rafe Kelly's events. If you're interested in designing a tribe and understanding that art form of how to build up people around you by building up yourself, come to a tribe design. If you're into art, painting, there is an immersive, if you're into diving, I know I've, I've been thinking about diving, there's diving courses around where I can just, I don't have to read about it. I don't have to watch it on my Instagram. I can just actually go do it myself and tinker around and get information that some people call as failure. So I, I encourage everyone listening to fail forward, fail forward on their passion. And the people that you are aspiring to be like, that you might show up on social media, the reason they're highlighted is because they've probably failed more than anyone else. That's how they've become more of a master at their craft. And they probably went all in on what lights them up. So. The potential is in the practice. I think that what one of the big things that I would I would sort of point to people is it's very easy to fantasize about what might be. And you can ask what's holding me back or why not me? And the answer is, have you asked what you're willing to sacrifice to get there? Have you asked what you're willing to put in? Um, potential collapses with action. And the choices that you make and the actions that you take create the potential of what you become. So be intentional and create the person that you would admire, that you would like to be, the future that you care about. Yeah, that's like that. That's like treating oneself as their own hero that they're continuously becoming rather than thinking. It's like a moving target of success. Yeah. And I trust everyone, and I bless everyone with a, a, a generous and a graceful path on that on that pursuing their passion all in and taking action putting action into your intention putting action into your big ideas rather than keeping them in your mind i remember mark cuban came to my college and gave a speech real quick about business yeah and his main what i heard him say was like hey everyone in this room has a million million dollar ideas and he doesn't really care about that he just wants to know who's gonna take it to completion and that's to me that's breaking normal yeah Absolutely. And Most, also being anti-fragile. Fuck yeah. Yeah, the, um, what was I going to say? Um, the no path deeply, passionately pursued doesn't give real dividends. You may not reach the goal that you set for yourself, but if you pursue it with your full passion, you'll find something really valuable. And I think through that tinkering, you'll find the fun comfortableness. You'll find the fun in the uncomfortableness. You'll find the pleasure in the pain. And I don't think if anyone's 
listening, they're not willing to feel any pain, you may never feel the pleasure that you're looking for as, as well. And if you're never really fa- willing to fail, you may never, may never found the fulfillment that you're here for. Yeah, that's actually been one of my big personal lessons from Tribe Design. I, I definitely um, learned to self-protect through emotional separation um, as part of my, my journey through life, and there's a power in that, but it's a, it's a self-limiting power. And there's a point in which you need to uh, recognize that to experience the highest highs, you need to be willing to suffer the lows. You need to be willing to open yourself to the pain in order to experience the greatest joy. And then there's also joy in that path. I think for the person that takes that path, they might find out when pain is not what they thought it was, that failure is not what they thought it was, that a low is not necessarily, maybe it's more like a hurricane. Maybe it's more of an outer band. Maybe it doesn't have to be up or down or better or worse, but more all of an experience that we can amplify. I think growth takes place in awareness. Are you aware? Are you listen? Who, uh, whoever's listening to this, are you aware of how you interact with your these tools of social media or how you play with the environment? Are you willing to accept where you're at? Are you willing to amplify the feelings around that acceptance? And then are you willing to take action and make it different? And there is growth. That's growth for me. And, and um, man, I know we've probably hit right here at 59 minutes. I love um, what the final exercise we're doing at the Tribe Design that we have not got to do with each other is basically stand up look at each other, share one appreciation with each other. And I do believe if we fully appreciate one thing that we're inevitably appreciating everything because I, I think they're all connected and it's kind of a concept. And if we can dive into that one concept, we can feel gratitude for everything. So I'd love to do that with you to conclude this. Sure, Is there anything good. else that you want to share? No, I'm, I'm really happy with the conversation we've had. All right. So let's see. Mr. Rafe Kelly, I appreciate you um, – for your amazing ability to charismatically communicate like what you're perceiving, what you are perceiving and where other people can understand it. Um, and it, it, it's inspiring and it's motivating and it's clear. It's clear and it's not, it's not, so, you didn't soften the blow. You turned, you amped up what was important. And I, I'm really thankful that you continuously do that with me and others. Thank you so much. And uh, Daniel, as I've said, I think a couple times, but I, I have to repeat it. I appreciate so much about you that you have set up a place where you could easily fall into the role of guru and you've continually invited people into being able to critique you to make your stuff better. And the the work that you're doing and the way that it's allowed people to open up emotionally and the openness with which you do that, I think is profoundly transformational for anyone who encounters it. And I was very skeptical, to be honest, uh, in coming in and, and, and witnessing that, and I've been shocked. I have been shocked, and I have been uh, transformed through encountering your work. So thank you very much. Thank you. And now we're hugging, and I encourage everyone to do this exercise like once a day with whoever's the most whoever's most on your heart. If it's your mom, your dad, your partner, your daughter, your son, your dog. Whoever or whatever it is, maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's an inanimate object. Can you look at it? Can you express your appreciation for it? And can you embrace it with a loving hug? Make that a daily practice. And uh, we'll see you at maybe a return to the source or a tribe design or just a serendipitous run-in. It seems like the more I'm open to that magic, the more I see it. So thank you for being a part of it. Thank you very much. All right. Keep breaking normal, y'all. Peace. This boy and girl are going to be well-equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. 
I trust that was illuminating to you as it was to me and that you're ready to go play with more purpose and more passion. And if this message aligns with you and your heart, I challenge you to send an application for internationaltribedesign.com right now. Not tomorrow, because a lot of times when someone wins on themselves, they'll do this win. That opportunity may no longer present itself. And I don't think it's even really winning. I think that's closer to losing. If you have a dream or a desire, take action on it right now. If it's really calling to your heart, go all in it right now. And if that's a tribe design, even if it doesn't make much sense, if you feel that heart call, make that a practice to start answering that. And we'll see you in Austin or maybe even another event. And um, please, please, I am asking you as well, while I'm on the role of asking for what I want uh, without being attached to getting it, please, can you leave a uh, review on this podcast? I'm, I'm not asking you to doctor it up or be deceptive about it, but to leave an honest review so I know what you want more of, what you may want less of, and uh, maybe who people you want to interview or if you want to sponsor it. Reach out to me, breakingnormal.com. Keep breaking your own normals. Keep shedding the skin of who you're not so you can really remember who you are and become even better than that. Much love to y'all. Job bless.